This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is a newsreel from the Associated Press in Germany, April 6th, 1933. The headline is Boycott of Jews is Enforced by Nazis. That same month in the U.S. and the U.K., an anti-Nazi boycott began, discouraging people from buying German products. Hitler was chancellor and had been building his case against Jews and communists for months, calling them the, quote, enemies from within who had caused Germany devastating losses in World War I. Later that year, IG Farben, the largest chemical company in Germany, gave its American publicist a massive new contract. That man was Standard Oil PR guy, Ivy Lee. He had been working for Farben in the U.S. for about $4,000 a year since 1929. In 1933, the German parent company offered him $25,000 a year and his son $33,000 a year for advice. Standard Oil was also working with Farben. By this point, they had formed a joint venture to work on petrochemicals and synthetic fuels. They'd seen what Lee had done for Standard Oil and the Rockefellers. And with the boycotts and growing anti-German sentiment in the U.S., Farben wanted Lee's help. And the reason for the big raise soon became clear. He wasn't just advising a German chemical company. He was advising the Third Reich. Now, as far as we can tell from various available documents, the point was not to sell the Nazi regime and its ideas to America as is, but for Lee to convince the Nazi leadership to tone down the rhetoric, to shift some of their thinking, make themselves more palatable to Americans. One of the big things that Lee was focused on initially was getting them to drop the idea of kicking the foreign press out of Germany. Because that idea had been floated at the time, and it was something Lee thought of as a clear indication of fascism. In January 1934, Lee takes meetings with Hitler and also with his minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, and offers them some advice. To get along better with Americans, Lee suggests they stop pushing propaganda in the U.S. and, rather than kick out the foreign press in Germany, they should befriend them. This advice was actually documented a few months later in written testimony to the House Un-American Activities Committee by U.S. Ambassador to Berlin, William Dodd. Dodd goes on to write about a conciliatory speech that Goebbels delivered to diplomats and the foreign press, saying, quote, It was plain he was trying to apply the advice which Ivy Lee urged upon him a month ago. Lee testified about his work in May of 1934, and it wasn't the first time he'd been investigated by the government. 
Lee's work for the Soviet Union had also raised suspicions. He often bragged about being responsible for the U.S. resuming trade with Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, a feat he firmly believed was just good for business for both countries. He took a similar stance on his work with the Third Reich, but the press didn't necessarily see it that way. When his testimony was released to the public, reporters grilled Lee, and he did the exact opposite thing that he'd always advised his clients to do. Instead of talking to the press, he dodged them. By August, Hitler was not just chancellor, but also president of Germany, officially the Führer. Ivy Lee had developed a brain tumor by this point. In his last months, he met again with Dodd, who wrote about this meeting in his diary. He wrote, Today, the old man looked broken, and in spite of talk about his cure, I am sure his health is very poor. He has made his millions the last 20 years, and now the world knows how it was done. Lee died in November 1934. He couldn't answer any more questions, so the government closed their investigation of him, and he wouldn't live to see what his last clients would do. So why would the Third Reich go looking for a publicist in America? Because in just 20 years, Lee had turned John D. Rockefeller from a man routinely described as the most hated man in America into a kindly philanthropist who was widely admired. He did that through a combination of tactics that have been used by everyone from dictators to CEOs ever since, and that are still very much in use by the fossil fuel industry today. And he created essentially the first front group, an oil industry organization that allowed individual companies to pool resources and vastly expand their reach without anyone really noticing. That's the story we're going to dig into in this episode. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled, Season 3, The Mad Men of Climate Denial. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, go back and do that. This season, we're looking at the history of Big Oil's big propaganda machine and the specific spin masters who helped create it. You met Ivy Lee last time. Mr. Rockefeller, listen to me patiently. 
pleasantly and calmly until I'd finished my eloquent presentation of why you should do The thing you need to know about Ivy Lee's first years in PR is that he invented some of the fundamental techniques that are still in use today. The press release and the press conference are the two you probably know best. In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. But arguably the most important method Lee perfected, the foundation of PR, was the use of tightly controlled language. He believed that words really matter and that industry should try to control them. We see this today all the time. In the case of climate change, for example, the term has shifted over the years. The greenhouse effect, global warming, climate change. All of that, the press releases, the press conferences, the language, the wordplay, it's all so common now that it's hard to even imagine a time before those things existed. But when Ivy Ledbetter Lee was growing up in Georgia, America was a very different place. Lee was born just a few years after Americans discovered that oil could be used for energy. Before that, it was just this annoying substance that came up whenever we were looking for water or salt. And then it became a cure-all. Seriously, people used to put crude oil on sore muscles or even drink it to treat everything from cholera to bronchitis. But by the 1870s, the oil rush was on. Journalist Ida Tarbell chronicled those days in her magnum opus, The History of Standard Oil. Ivy Lee was born during those 1870 boom years. He was the son of a popular minister in Georgia. After graduating from Princeton University, Lee worked as a reporter for a few years. And then, like so many journalists since, he got tired of being broke and took a job as a publicity guy. From there, he got into political campaigning and he worked for the Democratic National Committee for a while, the DNC. There, he met a guy named George Parker, who was working on the campaign of a Judge Alton Parker. The judge is a candidate no one remembers because he got absolutely trounced by President Theodore Roosevelt, who won his re-election that year. When the election was over, George and Ivy joined forces to create one of the country's first PR firms. They were also the first to distinguish public relations from just publicity. Publicity was about getting your picture in the paper. Public relations was about building a real relationship, not just between your client and the media, but also kind of using the media to make a better relationship between your client and the public. As a former journalist, Lee really believed that companies should be more transparent with the press. In his mind, rather than hiring publicity managers, companies should be hiring staff journalists to help them explain themselves to the public. So yeah, we might have him to thank for that trend. Lee worked with a bunch of coal companies in his early years, and they were all pretty regularly embroiled with labor disputes. So he put out this declaration of principles that was all about how companies should be truthful and authentic. But what he actually helped them do is use the truth to sell lies. And that's a key tactic the fossil fuel industry still uses today. Here's science historian Naomi Oreskes. One of the reasons that it's so easy for people to sow doubt about climate change or any other issue is that if confusion is your goal, mixed messages are a very effective strategy. So you can say a lot of different things, and some of them may well be true. And you can even quote out of context the true things you have said in order to make it seem as if you're quite reasonable, as if you're operating in good faith and that you are an entity to be trusted. 
You can totally see the roots of that in the very first press release, which Ivy Lee wrote. In 1906, Parker and Lee were working on behalf of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company when one of its trains fell off a drawbridge in Atlantic City. 50 people were drowned, and the railroad came to Lee and Parker basically looking for help covering it up. Because that's how railroads handled things at the time. They were constantly having wrecks and then covering up what happened. But Lee had learned from his time with the coal companies that this kind of thing was just a bad move. It made the public distrust you. And besides, it wasn't always the railroad's fault that these wrecks happened. Plus, he was starting to realize that whoever told the story first was the one the public really listened to. So he convinced the Pennsylvania Railroad guys to go a different route and draft a statement to send to the media instead. And it does exactly this thing that Oreskes talks about. It uses various truths to ultimately mislead people. It says the wreck happened, the company doesn't know why yet, but it's investigating. But it knows that it's not the rails or the bridge or the operators. And it lands on a suspicion of the cause of the wreck, the manufacturing of the train car, which of course is the only thing the railroad has no responsibility for. So it never outright lies, it just leads to a particular conclusion that benefits the railroad. Lee sent this statement to the New York Times and got an incredible result. The paper printed it word for word. And now, suddenly Lee realizes, wow, this is a lot of power. I can just tell journalists what the story is and they'll print it? This is a big deal and a really big tool for industry. It wasn't just generally a better idea to tell people what you're actually up to, communicating with the press in this way also gave you the opportunity to shape the story. So this is a big, big shift in how the public gets information. A couple years later, Lee has another big breakthrough. He realizes another key part of shaping the story is shaping the language journalists use to describe his clients and what they're doing. So by this point, his firm has shut down, he and George have parted ways, and he's working full-time for the Pennsylvania Railroad. He writes the first PR advice book, and in it, he says the key thing that companies need to worry about is getting the public on their side. And he talks about how you can use language to do that. He gives the example of railroads and the full crew law. So like I said, at the time, there were a lot of wrecks. And actually, a lot of them were happening because of negligence and because trains were understaffed. So the government steps in and they try to impose what they call full crew regulations. Basically, you have to have full staff on your train to make sure it's safe. But Lee flips the script on this. He has the Pennsylvania Railroad guys start talking about these regulations as extra crew requirements. So just think about that for a second. The difference between full and extra and what a stroke of genius this was. Full implies that the railroads are cutting corners, that their crews are lacking in some way. Extra implies that this is not a necessity, that the government is asking railroads to do more than they need to and imposing a burden on them. It's totally standard industry spin today, but we have Ivy Lee to thank for that. And that's a good thing to remember that this kind of thinking was going on in the background of corporate communications very strategically more than 100 years ago, especially when you listen to the way the industry describes itself today. We're leading the world in oil and natural gas production. That means lower energy costs, more growth, more security for Americans. More energy means more opportunity. We just need the right policies to make it happen. By the time Ivy Lee began working with Rockefeller in 1914, he was a master at this stuff. And shortly after that, the U.S. joined World War I, and Lee was tapped to run publicity for the American Red Cross. 
That job put him in regular contact with the government's propaganda department, which was also run by a former journalist turned political campaigner, a guy named George Creel. Creel had helped campaign for President Woodrow Wilson with the slogan, he kept us out of the war. So now that Wilson was joining the war, he wanted Creel's help convincing the American public that it was a good idea. And Creel was up to the task. He pulled together both journalists and publicity experts, graphic designers, musicians, filmmakers, basically anyone who had worked in or around media and entertainment in any way. And he launches a full-blown propaganda campaign across film, print, and radio. Even Ida Tarbell was part of the Creole Commission. It was all hands on deck. The Creole Commission and Ivy Lee at the Red Cross were also tasked with creating a positive image of America outside the country. The guy in charge of that for Creole was Edward Bernays, who just so happened to be the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Bernays put all of his uncle's psychological know-how to work on behalf of the country. He went on to become one of Lee's top competitors and, like Lee, to have a large influence on Hitler's approach to propaganda. But in those days, they were focused on selling America to the world and learning a lot from each other. One of Bernays' big innovations was to enlist Hollywood in the effort, banning the export of anything that showed America in an even slightly negative light and funding movies that highlighted the bravery of American soldiers. It was the broadest and best-funded PR effort Lee had ever seen. And the experience taught him a very key lesson. If you can pull together enough resources, you can wage an all-out psychological war that's impossible to beat. Which, of course, gave him an idea for his best client, Standard Oil. One company, even a company run by Rockefellers, could only do so much. But what if they came together as an industry? They'd already kind of done it. A petroleum board of all the companies was pulled together during the war to make sure there was a steady supply of fuel to the front. If they could come together during war, why couldn't they do it to benefit the industry in peacetime? Here's environmental sociologist Bob Brule. Ivy Lee draws on his experience in the war propaganda board effort to start developing larger institutional public relations efforts. And he works with the head of Standard Oil of New Jersey, which we now know as ExxonMobil, to form the American Petroleum Institute in 1919. And so the American Petroleum Institute is, is now 100 years old, and it's considered to be the really the first modern, sophisticated, public relations-oriented trade association in the world. So in 1919, Ivy Lee begins representing not just the various standard oil companies, but also a new oil industry group, the American Petroleum Institute. With the resources of the entire industry behind it, the API didn't have to choose between media relations and lobbying or influencing the film industry and the news press. It could do all of it and more. This is really Ivy Lee's great and lasting contribution to how the world sees the oil industry today. For more than a century now, the API has been running a multi-pronged propaganda campaign, indoctrinating Americans with the idea that the oil industry is a fundamental part of American life. It started just after World War I, went right through World War II, and has carried on ever since. 
Here's a bit from a short film the API released in 1950 called 24 Hours of Progress. The production of oil is a measure of American progress. As our nation grows, so grows our need for petroleum. Now compare that with this 2018 campaign they ran called Power Past Impossible. I think the things that we're dealing with technology, we're pushing the boundary of what the oil and gas industry has seen. So before this guy talks, there's a lot of hard-bumping music and some patriotic word salad on screen connecting the oil industry to everything you know and love about America. It is really heavy-handed and very America, fuck yeah. And it's clearly trying to target young people. Part of this ad ran during the Super Bowl. Other parts showed up all over YouTube and various podcasts. But again, remember the big lesson Ivy Lee brought home from World War I to the oil industry was not just pool all these resources into a big group that can't be tracked, but also pool all these resources so you can wage a multi-front, all-out propaganda war. So it's not just commercials we're talking about here. It's way broader and deeper than that. Here's Dr. Brule again. The American Petroleum Institute was actively engaging in public relations activity. And I did find some material about their educational outreach to elementary and secondary schools in the 1960s about, you know, getting their viewpoint about energy and petroleum into schools, which starts certainly in the 60s and continues to this very day. It's every aspect of society and culture, from Super Bowl ads to educational materials in schools, for a hundred years, repeating the same message. Oil is good. Oil is is American. Oil is is necessary for progress. Oil is good. Oil is American. Oil is necessary for progress. Next time on Drilled, we'll meet our next spin master. Daniel Edelman learned all about psychological warfare while combating Nazi propaganda in World War II and came home and used those tricks on behalf of various industries, including the fossil fuel industry and his largest client, the American Petroleum Institute. Drilled is part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show is reported, written, and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Julia Ritchie is our editor. Our managing producer is Katie Ross. She also created this season's incredible artwork. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by B. Beeman. Rika Murthy is our editorial advisor. Naomi Lachance is our fact checker. Special thanks to Richard Wiles and to our First Amendment attorney, James Wheaton, and the First Amendment Project. Drilled is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. We appreciate their support. You can find Drilled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a rating or review. It really helps the show. And you can follow us on Twitter now at We Are Drilled and visit our new website, drillednews.com, for climate accountability reporting, newsletters, and behind-the-scenes stories from this season. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.